electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu. Here's what's ahead on the show. The record rally rolls on. It's day one of the new year and the markets are already at, get this, yes, all-time highs. Could this be the time to bank some of those profits over that last year? Plus, call it the catch-up trade. After a rough start to 2019, energy closes out the year with a big surge. But can that comeback last? And here come those gift returns. Berkshire doesn't put a ring on it. And new year, new drug prices. That's all ahead in rapid fire. But we begin with today's markets and Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Another day, another record. It feels like 2019 all over again. It does. And we're starting off great here. Record highs right across the board. Dow, S&P, as well as the Nasdaq. Uh, Boeing, a big help, by the way, Dom, on the Dow, up about six points. That's 40 points on the Dow in Jones Industrial Average. Big story was actually overseas. China cut its bank reserve ratios that may free up some money for lending over there. So we had a big rally on China stocks here, semiconductors, also trade-related, emerging markets trade-related as well, industrials, all this sort of related to the China trade today, helping things out. If you look at new highs, a lot of the new highs look like the old new highs that we had in 2019 with Apple there, Intel, a lot of semis new highs, JP Morgan, a lot of banks like Goldman Sachs also at new highs, and of course, fintech always at new highs. Visa, one of the big movers as well. Don't get too excited, though. Remember, some stocks that have been moving up, like the cyclicals, like material stocks and steel stocks. Down today, we had a downgrade of a U.S. steel uh, over uh, over a key bank uh, and a number of these steel stocks, like AK Steel, all trading down today. Dom, back to you. All right, Bob Asani, thank you very much for that rundown. As Bob mentioned, we are marching to those new highs today. But with the S&P and Nasdaq coming off their best yearly performance since 2013, could it be time to bank some of those gains. It may not be out of the realm of reason. Joining us now, Lindsey Bell, Chief Investment Strategist at Ally Invest. Also, David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Thanks to both of you for being with us. And ladies first, Lindsey, as always, why is it that I should believe 2020 is going to be the same as 2019? Or will it be different? Well, they usually are different, so we can start with that. But as far as the January fade goes, while there is research that shows that a lot of times investors will sell their winners from the year prior in January, there's also really good research out there that shows this little thing called the January effect, which says that the market usually performs pretty good in January. In fact, it's one of the better performing months for the entire year. On average, you see 62% of the time that January is up for the year. And if you get the first five days a big pop, that's even better for, for the outlook for the remainder of the year. So if we can keep up on what we're seeing today, it could be a positive for the market overall. All right. So, David, we could be one-fifth of the way to that five-day winning streak. That could bode well for the markets overall. But it sure seems like it could be a time when after a nice stellar run, we could be due for a pause. Again, maybe some of the bears have said it all year in 2019. Do you think that we can last this bull run? Can it keep going? At some point, you're going to have a pause. We think if you're an investor and you're looking at the next six to 12 months, we think the market can be up this year. 
Definitely do not expect a repeat of 2019. Uh, you had a breakneck up pace in the fourth quarter. The market was up about 9%. We do think, while January typically is a good month, uh, that there's going to be a slowdown. Uh, we think you have some stocks that did exceptionally well last year. They were above 30 times earnings. Uh, we would not be shy about scaling back on them, taking a few profits in them. Uh, typically, after a great run, the market does slow down a little bit. Uh, and by the same token, there are opportunities, uh, either sectors or stocks that lagged last year, uh, that were down due to tax selling. And we do think they are going to pop early in the year. So you have to be discerning in where you're selling and where you're putting that new money. All right. So, David, don't tease us here. You mentioned them. What stocks are you looking at? Which ones are the ones that are relative outperformers, given the performance perhaps lagging that they showed in 2019? Well, a few that really were poor last year, we think are good businesses and poised for our pop would be FedEx, Occidental Petroleum, uh, Gilead, we think is also uh, very well positioned. And Viacom, CBS, we think is a very good company at a spectacularly cheap price. We're expecting the stock to be substantially higher. And we do think at some point they might become a takeover candidate. Uh, no matter what happens there, we do think you win. All right. So, Lindsay. If, you, you, if you're winning with some of the underperformers, what places are you looking at then that could be the places you either want to stay away from or maybe get into because they do have that runway to continue the bull run from 2019? Well, I think David made a very good point. If you think about the multiple that the S&P 500 is trading at 18.4 times right now, that's very extended from the historic average over the last 10 years. It's it's averaged about 15.6 times. So we're getting into extended territory for sure. And I think we're at a period where we really need to see earnings catch up to that multiple. Um, so I'm, I'm with David in the fact that look at valuations of some of these companies. The ones that have run the most might be worth taking profits in and looking for, for value in others that, that haven't caught up to their earnings potential could be areas where you can find opportunity. So, so Lindsay, the preponderance of evidence, you watch earnings for a living. Are we due for a good earnings year in 2020 versus 2019? Well, the current estimate right now is we're looking for the S&P 500 to, to show earnings growth of 8%, which is pretty good by historical standards. But the problem is this is January 1. We usually see numbers come down throughout the course of the year. That doesn't mean the market can't go up as, market, as numbers come down because it's all about the forward-looking estimates. But I think we need to see more confidence in stabilization and profitability and the future of profitability in out years before we can get really excited about what earnings growth will be. David, sir, last word to you. What changes your investment thesis in 2020? It sounds like you're generally constructive. What takes you off those rails to become more bearish? We're constructive, but we do expect volatility. Don't get scared out of the market after sell-offs. The biggest wild card from our perspective is China and trade. Right now, it looks like you have a little bit of detente. If that fell off a cliff, if there was an escalation, if there were new tariffs, uh, we would be much more concerned about the economy, much more concerned about the market. All right. Thank you very much, David Katz. Also, Lindsay Bell as well. Happy New Year to you both. We appreciate it. Thanks. Well, China's kicking off the new year with a bang as it announces a new injection of liquidity into the banking system, giving a jolt to markets around the world, including here in the U.S. The move comes as China and the U.S. go into 2020 with a trade truce of sorts. President Trump saying the deal will be signed on January 15, something China has yet to confirm, by the way. Let's get to all of that with, and more with CNBC Beijing Bureau Chief Yunus Yun, who happens to be right here at CNBC Global Headquarters in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to see you. It's great to see you, Dom. All right. So, so 
it's interesting because David Katz and Lindsey Bell just put that conversation where we're going to kind of start with you. Mm. China could be the biggest risk out there. Yeah. Is there a scenario right now, currently, where things are good or are they maybe not as good as the headlines would make them out to believe? Oh, that's a difficult question because from the way, the way that the Chinese leadership is prioritizing the economy right now, it could mean that if you lifted up the hood, maybe things aren't really going very well, but uh, the government is definitely going to prioritize but, but and try ha- to make sure that things don't but get out of control. But here's the thing. You have so many of those sources. You talk to so many folks on the ground yeah. out there. Is there a general sense that things are in a good spot with regard to moving forward with trade deals, phase one to maybe phase one and a half to two at some point? Well, in terms of a good spot, from my conversations, the motivation is there by the leadership to try to make this truce happen. And a lot of that is because it's of the economy. So the government has already indicated that it wants to make sure that stabilization is going to be the priority for 2020. It's really seen as a make or break year. Uh, President Xi Jinping and the the leadership um, on the whole has been uh, talking a lot about the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, which is going to take place in 2021. And it's important because they have said that China will have a moderately prosperous society by then, which means Um, a doubling of the GDP number from 2010 by 2020. So a lot of people are talking about that means 6% growth in 2020. We have to make sure that the support is there. And so that's why you're hearing a lot of discussion about uh, the uh, different measures and liquidity being injected into the market. They're trying to do their part. There's no doubt. Now, now, now the reserve ratio requirement, the the, the idea that banks have to hold less back, they can lend out more, is not per se, apples to apples like an interest rate cut, but it kind of does the same thing. Right. This is not the first time they've done it over the past few years. No. Does that then signal that the Chinese economy needs it? Well, so there are two things going on right now with this particular injection, and that is that uh, the Lunar New Year is coming up, so a lot of people are concerned about the cash crunch, which happens every single year. But um, but also there is concern that the uh, smaller companies um, are not really lending enough. I mean, are not borrowing enough. So the, the, the money needs to be there. And the government is really trying to direct that money to these small and medium-sized companies, which traditionally don't really get enough money to be able to grow their businesses. We've heard that January 15th is going to be that time when this, ad- this agreement gets signed, translations aside or not. Is there any indication from your sources out in China right now that January 15th is going to actually happen? Um, There is no confirmation officially or in state media about that January 15th date. A lot of people are thinking it's potentially going to happen but because of, like what I said, all these economic reasons why it would um, be seen as important to happen. Um, The time actually fits into a window that makes sense when you look at uh, the moves that China has been making to try to improve the environment between the two sides. And then also um, Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are supposed to be in Davos on January 21st. So it seems as though that time frame would make sense, but nobody has confirmed it. Eunice Yoon, great to have you here in the studio with us. Thank it's you great so to be much. With you. Thank you very much, Eunice Yoon. All right, here's what's still ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan had a breakout 2019. Not just for the stock performance, but also for his social stances. We'll look at why 2020 could be an even bigger year. Plus, the energy sector tried to play catch-up in the last few months of the year, rallying 10%. Can that last? 
and why January could be the new April in the housing market. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 2019 was a big, big year for Walmart CEO Doug McMillan, and it wasn't just the nearly 30% rally in Walmart shares. The retailers stopped sales of e-cigarettes amid regulatory uncertainty. They banned ammunition sales for handguns and assault-style rifles after two deadly shootings at Walmart stores in Texas and Mississippi. Now, with McMillan becoming the chairman of the Business Roundtable, what other issues will he turn his attention to? He's got a big stage. For more on this and the future of Doug McMillan and Walmart, I'm joined by Scott Mushkin, founder and CEO of R5 Capital. Also, CNBC.com retail reporter extraordinaire Lauren Thomas. Lauren, we're going to start with you because you're going to set the scene for us. You know Walmart inside and out. You talk to them all the time. Sure. What exactly is Doug McMillan going to do, not just as CEO of Walmart, but as the head of the business roundtable for this coming term. Sure, but let's back up a little bit first, because like you said, 2019 was a huge year for Doug. And as someone who, arguably, he's the head of a company based in Bentonville, Arkansas, and they tend to fly under the radar, you know, um, a, lot, a lot of their stores are in rural communities, uh, but Doug really stepped up this year and he made a lot of big, bold moves. Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of us anticipate that that is kind of shedding light as to what's to come in the future, whether it be, you know, obviously trade is a really hot topic, continues to be in retail right now. Um, being the nation's largest private employer, Walmart immigration is, is another key issue that um, an- some analysts anticipate Doug might have some uh, more more uh, work to do there as well. So, so, so Scott, is this is Doug McMillan, and, and, and CNBC viewers know him, he's been on our air quite a bit, and we, we've talked to him a lot. Is Doug McMillan the kind of CEO that's going to really relish that spotlight, use it as a platform to get in a, or, or to, to push an agenda through? I mean, as far as pushing an agenda, I think he's got to be careful, but pushing social good, um, I think we, a lot of times we think these things are in conflict. You know, a corporation doing social good versus shareholder returns, ROIC. I would actually say Walmart is the poster child to be able to do both. I, I know Doug's talked about healthcare. Healthcare is a big deal for Walmart. They're in healthcare deserts, a lot of those super centers. It's a big opportunity as he grabs that mic to you know, shine light on the, you know, these healthcare deserts and do good and do, do good by shareholders. So it's interesting you bring that up, only because there have been so many debates and so many pieces of political commentary with regard to whether a CEO does need to take a stance on things. We've mm-hmm. heard it with Ed Stack over at Dick's Sporting Goods with rifle yep. sales and everything else. So is, is this a situation where Walmart can benefit because the CEO and a management team do take a social stance. It seems like shareholders have given that run in Walmart shares in 2019. I think you got to be careful, though. And Warren Buffett had some comments out today that was, uh, I think it was the Financial Times, basically saying companies need to be very careful uh, regarding social beliefs versus social good. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're doing a hot button issue that's kind of hitting the Twitter sphere or on Facebook, you got to be really, really careful because there's a social belief. My belief may be different than your belief. 
So I think you gotta be really careful there, but a social good. Um, another example Walmart could do is bringing food to underserved communities in urban areas where Omnichannel will, will certainly let them do that. I mean, Doug McGill is not a banker, Lauren. He's right. not one no. of those guys. Not, I mean, he's the CEO of, of one of the most iconic retail establishments ever in the history of modern man. Right. So, had, so what, is it, what, is, what can he do? Well, one thing I might add um, is, especially as Walmart now is head on uh, in war, basically, with Amazon. Um, and they're trying to reach a lot of the younger consumers, millennials. And I think as you look at the younger generation, as they look to make purchase decisions, they're opting for retailers that, again, you know, maybe have a good social responsibility. Right. You know, that's that's top of mind. So you could see maybe Walmart potentially winning over more customers that way. And that could be another weapon, so to speak, that they pull out yeah, against I mean, Amazon. Lauren's making a great point here. So one of the, we just did a focus group. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that came up in the focus group with e-commerce is all the packaging. You know, Walmart's got the, the super centers where they could, you know, hey, if you come pick it up at the store, it's more socially responsible. Sure. Drive sales, drive shareholder returns. Less cardboard waste. Less yeah. cardboard waste. So, you know, good for society, but also good for the corporation. So Lauren's making an excellent exactly. point. Exactly. In my apartment for the past three weeks, it's just Amazon boxes everywhere. <laughs> so, so you're an Amazon shopper. Yeah, not me. Or the, uh, the lobby of my apartment. So, so, so here's, so here's, here's you, you opened the door to a good question to kind of end things on. So, Scott, as we take a look at Walmart versus Amazon versus Target, Mm -hmm. Which of those three companies in your mind is best positioned in 2020? Uh, we go with uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon really, I think through the holiday period, we've seen a really big inflection point. Some of it was the next day. Um, I was actually, believe it or not, driving up to my home in Connecticut and uh, start, stopped at the Waffle House. And I had a conversation uh, with the waitress. I said, oh, is your Christmas shopping done? She's like, all done on Amazon Prime. And I think that's emblematic of what's going on here. So I think Amazon is really the place to be. Um, but all three of them are what we call omni-channel superheroes. And all right. should win. Perfect. Scott Mushkin, Lauren Thomas, thank you thank very you. much for that big discussion on Walmart and Doug McMillan. We've got some breaking news here. Let's get out to what's happening with uh, Meg Terrell here with some news on vaping. Meg. Hi, Dom. Well, the much-anticipated ban on flavors for e-cigarettes now coming down from uh, the FDA, essentially saying that they're going to ban flavors, including fruit and mint, but excluding menthol, uh, for all cartridge-based e-cigarettes. Now, those are the pod-based e-cigarette products, such as those sold by Juul. Um, and people are going to focus on the fact that menthol is excluded here. Now, Juul already stopped selling um, fruity flavors and mint flavors. Uh, menthol is going to stay on the market, um, and Juul's competitors are going to have to take off those other flavors. Now, this comes into effect uh, within 30 days, or these companies would be subject to FDA enforcement actions. Um, it also leaves on the market open tank systems, such as those sold in vape shops, um, flavors can presumably remain on the market uh, for those. Um, so there's something for everybody to hate here in this announcement because the original blanket uh, ban was for everything, including menthol. So uh, anti-tobacco groups are going to say menthol could still entice children to start using these products, guys. Um, so this has, was originally announced in September, finally coming down now from the FDA, uh, this ban on um, fruit and mint flavored e-cigarette products, Dom. Back All right, so something maybe for everybody to hate, that might be the sign of something good in terms of legislation or regulation. Meg Terrell with the latest on vaping. Thank you very much. Yep. Well, coming up on the show, Warren Buffett may have bailed out on Tiffany during the financial crisis, but that doesn't mean he wasn't looking for a long-term relationship. We have new details on why he sat out another blockbuster deal. Plus, April is usually the busiest month for buying a house. But if you're thinking about jumping into the housing market, you may want to do it right now. We'll explain why. That's coming up ahead. 
The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers in the stock market this hour. Shares of Signet Jewelers down more than 12% at this stage on a downgrade to underweight from equal weight over at Wells Fargo. The bank pointing to a deceleration in earnings growth, e-commerce issues, and credit concerns. So again, those shares off by about 12%. Then you've got here shares of AMD trading at levels not seen since June of 2000. Nomura Incident raising the stock price target from $40 to $58, noting new products and market share gains. So those shares up almost 6%. And then shares of Tesla, they are up more than 2% on a price target increase over at Canaccord Genuity, going from $375 up to $515 per share. Tesla also announcing it will deliver its second batch of China-made Model 3 sedans. That happens on January 7th. Canaccord Genuity's managing director, by the way, will be on the closing bell later on today to discuss that price target increase, what's driving it. And of course, that's all coming up at 4 p.m. Eastern time today on the closing bell. Now let's send it over to Sue Herrera, who's got a news update at this hour. Sue. Indeed, I do. Thank you, Dom. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says Iran or its proxy forces may be planning further strikes on American interests in the Middle East. And the U.S. is prepared to take preemptive action if it gets sufficient warning. This after a crowd of Iran-backed militiamen stormed the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad on Tuesday. New video today showing the wildfires still raging in the eastern Australian state of Victoria. The military in Victoria helped thousands of people who fled to the shore after a wildfire reached a coastal town and threatened their homes. And a small home along the Michigan, Lake Michigan shoreline fell down a sandy bluff in an area plagued by erosion. Fortunately, no one was home at the time and nobody was hurt. That home has been teetering on the edge of the bluff for months now. And the nutrition labels on your food will be looking a little different. The FDA's new labeling guidelines went into effect on Wednesday, along with a larger font. Thank you. The labels will now have side-by-side columns. Manufacturers are also required to include the amount of added sugars. That is the news update this hour. Dom, back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Sue Herrera. And here's what's coming up on The Exchange later on this hour. Ahead, here come the returns. Berkshire didn't put a ring on it. It's a new year, and that means drug price hikes. And will oil be the standout trade of 2020? It's all ahead on The Exchange. 
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes are Robert Frank, Meg Terrell, and Frank Holland, an all-star cast on this first day of the 2020 new year. First up, didn't like that sweater you got, didn't have the right size. You may not be alone. UPS says it will expect to ship, get this, 1.9 million packages back to their U.S. retailer homes. That's a 26% rise from last year. January 2nd is the busiest day for returns in the U.S. with about 10% of goods sold going back to retailers every year. And to put that in numbers, that's nearly $370 billion in possibly lost sales. I say possibly because not everything that goes back gets returned per se for cash. Sometimes they exchange it for a different size or something else. But it's a big deal, right, Frank? Yeah, you know, it's a huge deal. Uh, just to take us to a, just a different note for a second, it's really uh, increased the value and the demand for industrial warehousing, which is places where e-commerce returns and also your shipment leaves from. A lot of companies like that outperforming the market. And the question is, just like we work, is it a real estate company because you own space or is it an e-commerce company because you're handling so much e-commerce? Why can't it be both? Well, I think that was the question we were asking about WeWork. I, I can't be the person that decides either way, but the question is, what's more valuable in e-commerce? Is it the products or the ability to return them and send them back to you? Because that's what we all want to do. We want to order two things, maybe send one back, maybe two different sizes, maybe one fits, maybe it doesn't. And that's the kind of the upside of e-commerce for most consumers. So, Meg, do you plan on returning stuff? And if so, is this a <laughs> scenario where you've bought more because you think you can return more? Right. Who in my family is watching this? Who gave me presents this Christmas? <laughs> no, I love all of my presents. I will not be returning anything, but I actually have started returning things a lot more now that I've become a parent. I mean, when you order the wrong size of diapers, you accidentally keep your subscription going on Amazon, and I find the ease of returns that Amazon provides incredibly great, and it makes me more comfortable ordering perhaps more than I need, and that's maybe something I should be considering in terms of my own wastefulness and maybe trying to stop. <laughs> well, that's a factor, right, Robert? I mean, this idea that I feel like I can comfortably order more than I would have yeah. normally because if, if the ease of returns is that much kind of better, yeah. then I can just afford to just send it back if I don't yeah, want Yeah, I lived over and what amazed me about living overseas is how hard it was. Many stores don't even take returns. And I realize that's what makes America such a great consumer economy is that we have allowed this whole system of returns where you want to buy more because you feel comfortable. If it doesn't work, you can give it back. What's amazing to me is most of this is clothing that doesn't fit. And that seems to be something you should be able to fix with technology. And yet they haven't. Like, mm. You can measure yourself, and they could provide more precise measurements of what you're buying and know before you get it whether it fits. Well, you know, some people are actually doing that right now, so we'll see if that kind of trend takes. Yeah. All right, let's move on to topic number two, guys. Warren Buffett may have bailed out Tiffany during the financial crisis, but this time around, he wasn't so interested. According to reports, he turned down a takeover opportunity for Tiffany, clearing the way for LVMH, that buyout this year. It's another example of the Oracle of Omaha choosing to stay on the sidelines with all of that cash. Berkshire's cash hoard has reached a record $128 billion. Berkshire stock is also coming off its worst year in the decade, up just 11% in 2019. Of course, we all know at this point that's lagged the market tremendously mm -hmm. this time. So, Robert, he's the oracle for a reason. He's made so many good bets. He's a billionaire. He's on your radar. What gives? Why not Tiffany? Why LVMH? Well, on the face of it, this was a perfect Buffett company. So it has that brand moat that he loves to talk about. I mean, that Tiffany blue box is hard for anyone to replicate. It's a high barrier of entry into jewelry. On the other hand, it was expensive. You know, LVMH was going to pay 17 times earnings. More importantly, this is really a fashion play. This is where LVMH was going to boost returns by in increasing the design, making it sort of more hip to today's younger buyer. Among Buffett's many attributes and strengths, 
fashion is probably not one of them. So I think this is one where he said, look, what can I add to this? And probably not as much as LVMH. It's also added. funny, Meg, because it, it, throughout the course, even if you aren't an, a Warren Buffett expert, say like Robert Frank or others in our organization, you know that Buffett is not the type to overpay. Right. And, and so it, maybe it's just the idea that he doesn't want to get to a bidding war with Bernard Arnault. Europe's richest man at this point, who garnered $39 billion more net Who is also value. now worth more than right. Warren Buffett. So he's, he's buying, you know, going against a guy who's richer than him, which doesn't happen often to Warren Buffett. Well, I think, Robert, you probably made the point before. We've talked about uh, Warren Buffett holding off on acquisitions before and people thinking he should do something, and that's kind of what he does, right? When people think he should do A, he he's does so Z. Yeah. But it kind of reminds me of Gilead, just to bring it back to the space that I'm comfortable talking about in biotech. People were waiting for Gilead to use its hordes and hordes of cash for so long on another acquisition to get it back to the area where it was with hepatitis C. And then it did a deal and people were really disappointed. So you have to be kind of careful when you've waited this long, it gets even harder to do the right deal. All right. So speaking up, let's stay right here on the biotech side of things, because this year, pharma companies are apparently they ring, they're ringing in the new year for sure with a bunch of price hikes, <laughs> increasing the list price for hundreds of drugs here in the U.S. Meg, you've been following this story. Drug prices, a hot-button issue, especially in now what is officially an election, an election year. year. <laughs> and, of course, Pfizer is the biggest drug company that you often hear these headlines about. And it was that company that Trump tweeted directly at when they raised prices on something like 40 medicines a couple years ago. And Pfizer actually rolled back those price increases, um, agreeing to do so until Trump went through with his drug pricing reform plan, which never happened. And then Pfizer re-raised the prices on those drugs. So, of course, this is going to be a hot-topic issue for the election year, but it's just like clockwork. One thing that's interesting, though, and I think we have a graphic showing um, the drug price increases over time for three different companies, and you can see wherever this is. Here we go. Pfizer's right Zelljans, Lilly's Jardians, which is a diabetes drug, Zelljans is rheumatoid arthritis, and Biogen's Tecfidera, multiple sclerosis. These are the percentage price increases going back to 2016. You it's can declining. see they've been so much bigger in the previous years, yeah. and sure. it's, it's below 5% for the most part, definitely below 10% this year, and it really shows the impact of that political pressure on drug pricing. These companies are still increasing prices, but certainly not by as much. All right. So, Frank, do you think this will resonate with voters this time around? You know what? I, I think this is one of those situations where the public perception dies down after the headlines die down. I think we all remember the opioid settlement. I mean, it seems like that these pharma companies and, uh, you know, I'm not an expert like Megas, they just don't seem very responsible. And raising prices like this just doesn't seem very responsible. Obviously, it's on drugs that people probably really need, like oncology drugs and things like that. And so public perception sometimes clearly doesn't dictate what companies do, and this is a clear case. All right, guys, let's move on to the next topic here. Next up, we got people fleeing to, in Florida in droves, and it's providing a huge economic boost for the Sunshine State. New IRS data shows Florida netted an extra, get this, $16 billion in gross income from new residents who migrated there in 2018. That's more than three times the amount of Arizona, which came in second. It also marks Florida's sixth straight year as the top beneficiary of new residents moving to the state. I got to tell you, Robert, this resonates with me because I keep thinking to myself, how do I move to Florida when I retire <laughs> yeah. at some point? Because yeah. the tax situation is so Florida much man. better. Yes, I'm going to be. Why wait until then? You and I, the West Palm Beach Bureau. We can I do mean, the bureau. The, yes, the Miami Bureau. <laughs> can we make it the Naples Bureau? I'm, yes, I'm more Naples of a Gulf Coast good. guy myself. So. Look, I mean, the real story is so everyone's looking at these numbers and saying, look, the salt tax changes is causing all these wealthy New Yorkers, New Jerseyans, Connecticut people to flee to Florida. Told you it was going to happen. These are huge numbers. Sixteen billion dollars. Nine billion of that came out of New York, New York State just alone. But if you look at what's happened over time, this number of 16 was actually lower than it was in 2017. So the pace of out migration or migration into Florida has slowed. 
Second thing is the pace of out-migration from New York and Connecticut has also slowed. So, yes, we have a lot of people who get older in New York, and as Seinfeld said about his parents, it's the law. You turn 65, you got to move to Florida. <laughs> so I think that's the driver as opposed to the SALT impact where you see no discernible impact from the SALT change. But clearly, look, whether it's taxes or just weather and having fun in Florida, I mean, that's where people go to retire. And you don't have to be a billionaire like, say, a David Tepper or a Paul Tudor Jones right. to kind of Barry consider Stern, doing that. All, the others all those guys moving to Florida icon. as well. Yeah. 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 All right, guys, let's move on. Finally, just breaking moments ago, the FDA announcing a ban on the sale of fruit-flavored vaping cartridges, including mint flavors, but allowing menthol and tobacco flavors. This restriction won't apply to vape shops that sell the flavors via tank vaping systems. Meg, we'll turn to you first. You brought the news here. First of all, somebody tell me the difference between mint and menthol at this point. Well, from what I understand, and we were just discussing this earlier, and none of us vape, so we can't tell you from firsthand experience, but I understand that mint is more of a candy flavor and menthol might be a sort of harsher uh, flavor. Um, So... The idea is that menthol won't appeal as much to kids as mint. However, if you talk to anti-tobacco groups, they will argue that everybody who just did mint is going to switch over to menthol. And so this new policy is making a lot of people very unhappy because the original promise back in September from Alex Azar of the um, HHS was that they were going to ban all flavors except tobacco and that that was a necessary step to stop the youth epidemic. So, so I mean, Frank, you've been following the story right. closely from, from, from the e-cig side as well. Is this something where, where the industry can actually get behind it or work with regulators? Or is this kind of like a real atomic bomb, if you will, uh, well, of getting rid of everything but certain flavors out I, there? I think it's like a lot of compromises. No side is truly happy. So just to be clear, a pod is like a jewel. It's already pre-filled. You kind of pop it in, you use it. A tank you can actually mix and fill yourself. More used by adults, m- more mature users. This isn't teenagers outside of a school mixing their own tank. They're using so, pods. They're using pods. So this is definitely a compromise. I think the big issue here is, it's a, like you, we mentioned, it's a, an election year, and this is a big political story. This is one of the biggest small business stories of all time. President Trump himself has weighed in on this. Yeah, absolutely. Very much I mean, so. 20, in 2014, the e-cigarette market was about $2.5 billion. Last year, or in 2019, which seems like doesn't seem like it's last year, a couple days ago, but <laughs> in 2019, exactly, it was $9 billion, and a lot of the people selling this are small business owners who've made their money off people saying, hey, I want to get off cigarettes, I'm going to vape, it seems like it's a healthier option. So, so this is certainly a compromise. So, so Frank, I, I want to key on something that, that Frank brought up. This is not kids when, with, with tank systems. This is yeah. not kids kind of hanging outside the boys' room or exactly. girls' room doing this. But could it be? Is there a risk now? Do we think that there could actually be chemists that emerge that are younger in nature because they're mixing things in these tanks as opposed to using predetermined pods I, now? I w- there, there will be probably some solution to that that's, that makes it easier. But my question to you both is, will the gray market for all this stuff continue to flourish? And that's bad. And, and, and how will that make itself apparent? Will, it, will these stores sort of do it illicitly? Will there be... On the street, you can still buy pods. Will there be suddenly an influx of these coming from China that are unofficial? How will the gray market look? I think it's absolutely going to continue to flourish. And I think Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, talked about that this morning, including new products coming in from China that are completely different from these and getting into loopholes, and kids are finding these as well. So could it make it worse? Because now they'll be still doing it now that they're all hooked on it and they know how it works. But it'll be gray market, unregulated, and, and could be filled with oils or substances that well, could be a problem. Well, that's the issue in the THC vaping yeah. market where we've seen those deaths from the lung injuries, and it's incredibly scary. But I think it's important to mention that there's a deadline of May, by which time all of these companies have to apply for regulatory approval to stay on the market at all. And in order to do that, they have to prove that they have a net public health benefit. Benefit. 
So the fact that they've addicted all of these kids to nicotine has to be outweighed by how helpful they are in helping people quit smoking. Quit smoking. That's going to be an uphill battle. All right, guys, great stuff here. Robert Frank, Meg Terrell, Frank Holland, thank you very much for all those takes on those big stories. Well, seasonality in housing could be changing thanks to the ongoing home shortage. Those details are coming up next. And take a look at shares of Apple. That stock hitting, yes, another all-time high, nearing 300 bucks, up 90% in just the past 12 months alone. Welcome back to The Exchange. Typically, the busiest time for home shopping is still three months away in the spring, but the ongoing housing shortage could be changing things around. Diana Olick joins us now with that story. And Diana, are you telling me that spring is no longer the hottest season? Um, that's what I'm saying, Don. Look, that severe shortage of homes for sale is actually changing the calendar for the whole housing market. From 2015 through 2018, the peak month for average views per listing on Realtor.com was, of course, April. But now, January then lagged a full 16 percent. But in 2019, January was the busiest month on the site in 20 of the largest 100 metros. Those cities include New York, L.A., Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Seattle, San Francisco, Atlanta, Denver, just to name a few. In 2018, that was true for just three of the top 100 metros. And Atlanta is particularly competitive this year. I've gotten at least 30 maybe 30% more phone calls already um, to start the home search in January. It's a race out here, so it, it's either they get started fast or they wait until the actual spring market and they miss out on all the inventory. The number of homes for sale in November, which is the latest reading, was down 9.5% annually, and the supply of homes priced below 200000 was down a stunning 16.5%. So you want to move, you got to do it now. Back to you guys. All right, a lot of food for thought from you, Diana Olick. Thank you very much for those reports on the real estate market. We appreciate it. Well, energy finishing higher in 2019 with a strong last three months of the year, but seriously underperforming the broader S&P 500 overall. Is it time to play catch up and snap up some of those energy stocks in 2020? That debate coming up next. Of the 11 sectors in the S&P 500, energy was the clear underdog last year, as you can see there. That, series, that sector seriously underperforming the broader S&P in 2019, but energy hitting its stride in the gas in the past three months, rallying a whopping 10%. So do these stocks, that sector, have the fuel to play catch-up, and that keep that, can that trade keep going? So with us now, Pavel Molchanov, Senior Vice President of Energy Research and Analyst over at Raymond James. Also, Stephen Shork, Editor of the Shork Report. Stephen, we're going to start with you because we want to lay out the broad strokes and frame this discussion. What was bad and good about the energy market in 2019, and will those themes carry over into 2020? Well, we have to keep in mind, Dominic, that we ended the Q4 of 18 on an extremely depressed market. So oil prices rallying throughout 2019 is more a reflection of just how bad the market was oversold at the end of 2018. So to that point, we've only had a rally up with oil hovering in that mid-50 to mid-60 dollar range. Uh, don't see oil prices going uh, much higher uh, beyond that. Of course, I think the, the big, the bad out of 2019 was in geopolitics. Iran continually chum the waters. That is to say, either blocking the Strait of Hormuz by mining it, downing U.S. drones, seizing tankers, attacking Saudi Aramco, uh, clearly trying to escalate tensions in the region. Now, to Trump's credit, he did not take the bait. He did not respond in a military f- fashion. So cooler heads did prevail. But certainly geopolitics, 
of course, just looked at the Iranian-backed seizure on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Uh, geopolitics is going to be the main driver in volatility as we look ahead to the new year. So, pa- Pavel, Pavel, Stephen makes some excellent points. And, and as a news person who's been covering a lot of those events over the last year, I was just surprised that none of those geopolitical events really skyrocketed oil prices that much higher, save the bombing of what happened in those refineries in Saudi Arabia. And even that fell and corrected pretty quickly. So what is it that gets the oil market moving, Pavel, in your your opinion? Yeah, so when we think about anything out of the Middle East, those are fundamentally issues of supply. The oil market throughout the past year has been much more worried about the demand side of the equation. And that meant two big things. One is US-China, and the other is Brexit. Both of those, as it happens, got more or less resolved uh, within a 48-hour interval in the middle of December. If you remember, there was the phase one trade deal and then the British election, uh, which Boris Johnson won. So after that, oil has been uh, rallying on, on a sustainable basis because the demand question marks that have been impacting the oil market uh, have largely subsided. So I think that opens the door to the market refocusing on those Middle Eastern risks to oil supply, which are real and should not be ignored. All right. So, Stephen, the macro factors at play here, supportive of oil prices. It sounds like the both of you are saying that. Does that continue then? Can we expect oil prices to continue to rise and thereby benefit not just the countries that produce it, but the companies within those countries that are the most levered to it? Well, Dominic, on the further upside, my real concern on the demand side comes from the industrial side of the economy. We've been looking at the statistics uh, over the past six months. I think it's safe to say that the U.S. economy is in, excuse me, the U.S. industrial side of the economy. So one eighth of the U.S. economy is now in recession. Uh, Going forward, of course, I think a lot of that recession does correlate to the ongoing trade rift. Uh, between Beijing and Washington. I do appreciate that we did have a phase one, but it is not in China's interest to have any sort of meaningful resolution to the trade pact until we get through the election. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that uh, Xi in China would much prefer to negotiate in December with a Joe Biden or perhaps his ideological brethren in a Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders rather than Donald Trump. So Z can wait Trump out. So I'm not expecting any sort of meaningful return to industrial demand. And therefore, that will continue to act as a drag, gotcha. I believe, on uh, uh, in the, to the new year. All right. So, gentlemen, I I wish we had more time because we have a lot more to discuss here, including what's going to happen with some of these shale plays in the U.S. Thanks to both of you. Pavel Molchanov, also Stephen Shork for that view on energy. As the markets continue to post record highs in the new year, it's a great time for 2020 financial resolutions. So how to set those realistic goals in the new year? That's coming up next. Millions of Americans had a great financial year in 2019 with the stock market hitting record highs. So what steps should you take this year to keep that momentum going in your personal finances? Joining us now with a few realistic resolutions is Janet Alvarez. She is a CNBC and Acorns contributor, also provides Spanish language content for Invest in You, Ready, Set, Grow on our sister Telemundo station as well. Janet, thank you so much for being here. Happy 2020. Please take me through what I need to do in 2020 to improve my personal financial situation. So you want to create realistic goals for 2020. And the first one we have is thinking about paying yourself first. 
That's the most important concept because it allows you to keep more of your money in your own pocket. The second thing is to automate your investment contributions. That way it's easy, you don't have to think about it, and you allow yourself to continue growing. The third is to really think about investing over the long term. Investing is a long-term game. You can't think about today or tomorrow. You have to really think about the long term. Fourth, it's compound interest. Compound interest allows your money to grow over the long term, to gain on top of the gains. And then finally, think about interest rates and inflation because these can have a real and material impact on your investments. All right, so let's, let's take the first one, pay yourself first. What does that mean? I say this because I have a, a, a small child at home. I've already got a 529B plan set up. So I'm paying her a lot right off the bat because I want to make sure that I have enough situated for her college education when she gets older. So what does the pay yourself thing mean? So it's about keeping your hands out of the cookie jar. And we both have small children, so we know the temptation to rely on instant gratification and really enjoy your money today. Paying yourself first is about allowing yourself to enjoy more of that money tomorrow by saving today, about delaying that gratification so that that dollar you save today becomes five, 10, $20 in the future. So the time value of money is obviously key in that scenario right there. Precisely. I'm almost looking at the, the automated investment contributions. It sure feels, now I am one of millions of Americans that participates in a 401k program. Every paycheck, a certain amount gets garnished or held back and invested for me. Is that the simplest way to go about doing it? For most Americans, that really is the simplest way. 401k plans allow you to sort of automate your contributions. And if you take a closer look at your 401k plan, many of them also offer auto increase options that allow you to set them so that they increase by 1% or more per year and your contributions grow with your income that way. But there are also a number of interesting apps on the market today. Acorns, for example, is an excellent one that allows you to sort of contribute small amounts over the long term. You can really see that growth. Uh, but the key is to just automate investments in whatever way possible. There are a number of solutions available today. Take advantage of them so that your money is growing. And of course, CNBC and NBC Universal, both investors in the Acorns company itself here. One last thing before we let you go. The, the mindful of interest rates and inflation thing is curious to me because interest rates haven't really moved for a long time and inflation is relatively non-existent in certain key parts of the market. So how much do we really have to pay attention? You always have to be mindful of the economic environment that you're in. And so typically you want to think about how much your money is earning relative to how much inflation is actually occurring because inflation can erode your earnings. So one way to keep on track is to invest more every year so that inflation doesn't eat away at the pace at which you're investing. And that is what we're committing to through the Invest in You program is encouraging everyone to stay invested and keep invested for the long term. All right, Janet Alvarez over at Acorns, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, for more on recreating those realistic goals, check out cnbc.com forward slash invest in you. That does it for The Exchange. Let's send it over to Power Lunch. It begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.